We are continuing our vision and values, and uh, I wonder if we can remember what we've already done. I struggled myself this morning to make you feel better about that. Um, so the first one was that we are a Trinitarian church, so we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the second one was that we believe in an encounter with God, that we are a worshipping church where we have an encounter with God. And then thirdly, we were talking about being uh, people who are transformed by that encounter. So we become disciples and we make disciples going forward. So those were all kind of under the meet God bit. And now we're moving on to the meeting friends bit of the vision statement. So this morning we are looking at this. Um, by the way, welcome to Palindrome Sunday, those of you who haven't already been aware of that. It's very exciting. Apparently it doesn't happen very often at all, so you might not see another one, so enjoy it. We are going to talk about being an authentic church. We want to be an authentic church. We want to be a church which keeps it real. We want to be genuine we don't want to be fake or superficial. We don't want to pretend. We want to be real, normal people who are learning together what it means to follow Jesus. But sometimes authenticity is easier said than done. Actually, at the 9.15, authenticity was not easier said either. I couldn't even get that word out of my mouth. But sometimes it's easier to talk about it than it is to do it. I wonder how many of us turn up at the steps of the church in one frame of mind, person A. And then we think, oh, I really shouldn't be like that this morning. So we put on person B who is serene and calm, has had an amazing week, trusting in the faithfulness of God, and just can't wait for the songs to be started so that we can sing. We've never had an argument with anyone in our family during the past week. We haven't had an unkind thought or said a harsh word. Do you recognize yourself? And the people sitting around you, who of course are perfect. Authenticity, what does that really mean. Somebody uh, said this, authenticity requires vulnerability, transparency, and integrity. Well, that's easy then, isn't it? We can all manage that. A bit of vulnerability, a bit of transparency, and a bit of integrity all thrown into the pot together, and there we have it. Authenticity. See, what I think is that authenticity requires two things, risk and trust. Both of those two things. Because if we just risk, then actually it can destroy us, to be honest and real and authentic. But if we have trust as well, then the risk is worth it because there's the trust. And just maybe that's safe enough. Somebody else put it like this. Authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. Well, that's actually quite difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's particularly difficult in church because obviously we're all supposed to be saintly and holy and perfect. And I know you're laughing, but actually we do have a sense of that, that we, we should somehow be the best version of ourselves, even if it's not the perfect version of ourselves. 
And sometimes in order to really be ourselves, we need to let go of the person we think that we're supposed to be in order to be the person we really are supposed to be. But it isn't easy, is it? I mean, what happens if we are authentic and real and make ourselves vulnerable? What happens if people don't like us? What happens if people don't accept us? What happens if people don't want us? Is it okay to be real and authentic, or is that asking a little bit too much? As I was uh, thinking about this this week, I came across this little poem, and it's really powerful. It's very simple, but very powerful. It talks about what happens when we choose to hide ourselves too much, or we choose to play games, which of course we all do to an extent. And don't get me wrong, I know there's appropriate and inappropriate places to be totally authentic. But this poem says this. She had blue skin, and so did he. He kept it hid, and so did she. They searched for blue their whole life through, then passed right by and never knew. Do you understand? Now, that's what happens, isn't it, when we decide to hide ourselves whilst desperately looking for somebody else who's like us. But if they're hiding themselves, then we'll never meet. It's, of course, courageous vulnerability that leads to genuine authenticity. And that word vulnerability actually comes from the Latin word, which means to be wounded. So when you are vulnerable, you open yourself up to wounds, don't you? You can nod, by the way. Because we know what that feels like. We know that sometimes we have been vulnerable and we have been wounded. Those two things are so closely knit together, you can't actually be completely vulnerable without probably sometimes receiving wounds. That's probably how it works. And of course, it takes a courageous vulnerability that leads to a more genuine authenticity, to an openness. And that's true in our relationship with God. And of course, it's true in our relationships with one another. Is it risky? This is not a rhetorical question. Is it risky? Yes. Might you get hurt? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Oh, see, some people feel that more strongly than others. I think it is worth it. Is anyone perfect? <coughs> oh, that was quite unconvincing, actually. <laughs> is anyone perfect? <laughs> Slightly worried there for a moment. No one is perfect. That's really important in a church community to remember. Just because people might look like they are, or they might portray a Facebook image that they are, does not mean they are. A friend of mine uh, who started doing some work looking at well-being and mental health and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know whether he coined this word, but he's definitely been using it a lot. Um, it's the word... Flawsome, which is defined as an individual who embraces their flaws and knows they're awesome regardless. It's good, isn't it? Flawsome. Please put your hand up if you have any flaws. 
Actually, do that again. Now look around you. What does it mean to know that you have got flaws and yet know the presence and power of God in that and the fact that he's made you and he loves you and he's for you? That makes you flawsome, doesn't it? Because when God made us, he said, it's good, very good in fact. And I know we don't always speak that word over ourselves, do we? We don't always say of ourselves, it's very good. Mostly we look in the mirror and go, oh my goodness, and I've got to go out. (laughs) But God says, God says we're very good. He knows that we're broken. He knows that we're not perfect. But he says that we are very good. And we are a community of the broken and the being healed, aren't we? We will not be fully healed, fully perfect, until we meet Jesus face to face. And that'll be either because we die and go to meet him, or he comes to fetch us, depending which one comes first. But we won't be perfect until we meet him face to face. We are a community of the broken and the being healed. We are a community of the flawsome. Maybe we should put a sign with that on it outside our building because it says something about who we are, doesn't it? And so the challenge is to step out from the masks. And it is a challenge. To be who we are, to allow ourselves to really encounter God as we are and to encounter each other. One of the most wonderful things about this church, I think, in the past a few years, is the amount of people who've been really super brave, who've made themselves extremely vulnerable, who've stood on this very small platform here and talked about their flaws, who've said, I'm here and I've been struggling with an addiction to alcohol, but I'm working with that. I'm here and I've put that behind me. I'm here because I've walked through an experience of domestic abuse in my family. I'm here because this is difficult and I'm struggling with this, but I'm just holding on to God. My friends, when people stand here and they say that, we just go, my goodness, you are flawsome, don't we? You know, there is something about courageous vulnerability that makes us love people more, not less, that makes us think that they are more brave, not less brave. And in that moment... Some kind of incredible transaction occurs by which others of us who are sitting in our chairs go, I can share my story now. And it may be the same story, it may be a different story, but when one person is vulnerable and brave, it allows other people to be brave and vulnerable as well. And that leads to authenticity, and that's really important. And I want us to look at two things, probably more one really than the other, this morning. One is around being authentic in our relationship with God. And I'm going to start there because I think that when we're real with God, it enables us to be real with other people as well. Because if we know he loves us as we are, then actually we can step out of that into a reality with other people. And so there are so many places I could have turned in the scriptures. In fact, as I was thinking about where to turn, it made me even more aware than I already was, that the scriptures are shot through with authenticity. There are no cardboard cutouts 
in the Bible. There are no glossy people at all. There's nobody who's photoshopped. People are messy, like proper messy. People are marred by sin, by failure. They are broken. They are weak. Some of them are seriously dysfunctional. And yet they are loved and included in God's plan. If you don't believe me, just start at the beginning. It really doesn't take you more than about two chapters before you realize that what I've just said is true. And then it carries on all the way to the end. But perhaps the person who most comes to mind is David. His life is like a case study in authenticity, in being real. The good, the bad, and even the ugly, actually. And so I just want to look at some of the things that he said. I wonder what your Bible-based songbook would be. I'm sure most of you would probably say the Psalms, because the Psalms have been used as a songbook for the church Well, since they were written, they were used as a songbook in the temple. And then they've been changed into chants and plain song and all manner of other kinds of music throughout the centuries. Every century of Christian life has turned to the Psalms to sing the praises of God. But I wonder if we've missed something there, because it seems to me that really the Psalms are not a songbook for the church but more like a playlist for life. Not a songbook for the church, but a playlist for life. I don't know how many of you have like Spotify or something equivalent, just for the sake of those who may not have a clue what I'm now speaking about. (laughs) Generally the younger generation, but not entirely, use playlists on something like Spotify, which is a kind of an app that you can get for your phone. Okay, I'm losing people, I know. (laughs) And what they do is they put in all the songs into a playlist that they want in that playlist. So it may be a a playlist for chilling out, or it may be a playlist for a party night, or it may be a playlist of 1970s tunes, uh, or it may be a playlist for when I'm feeling fed up. But you put all the songs together, and you you form a playlist, and then you just play the playlist, and all the songs of the same kind of genre play together. See, David's songbook is just like that, but it's a playlist for the whole of life. Whenever I feel happy, I can find something that I can sing. When I feel sad, I can find something that I can sing. When I'm confused or bewildered, when enemies are coming against me, I can find something here I can sing. When I want to give it all up, I can find something that I can sing. This is a playlist for the whole of my life. And it's really, really important for the encouraging times and the challenging times, for the mountaintops and the deep valleys, when it's going well and when you want it all to end. There is a psalm for every single day of your life. And I love this quote that I found. It says this, Do not look, at the, sorry, do not look down at the psalms with a magnifying glass. Pray them upwards with a megaphone. I love that because you know what? Ooh. <laughs> a bit scary. <laughs> when we look at the Psalms and we, we try and analyze every little phrase, 
We lose something, don't we? You know, that's why, although I think that it's super important that the songs that we sing are theologically sound, when occasionally they're a little bit more poetic, that's okay because it's a song. It's saying something out of our experience. It's important we're not singing wrong stuff, but we do need to remember that what we're singing is poetry. It's expression of emotion. It's about our lives. And so the way that we write in those moments is different from, say, Paul's letters, where it is appropriate to go over them with a fine-tooth comb and ask, what is he really saying? And it may be that a phrase jumps out at us, and we want to meditate on that, which is the same Hebrew word that cows use for chewing the cud. Well, the cows don't use them, obviously. Um, (laughs) But when you chew over something and you let it come into your system and become a part of you, that's okay. But when we're trying to work out every bit out of its context, that's not how it works. Because David wrote these songs to be shouted to heaven with a megaphone. I just want us to look for a moment at what is the general pattern of the Psalms. Now, every Psalm does not fit into this pattern, so don't take this grid and try and put it on the top. It won't work. But when you read them, you start to see this is the kind of pattern that David uses in the songs that he writes. First of all, he is real. So often it starts very real. God, I'm at the bottom of a pit. You know, that kind of real. I feel I'm uncertain. I think that my enemies are going to get me. He starts real. You know, there is no other place that we can start but where we're at. So if you've come in here this morning and you're carrying heavy burdens of any description, that is where you are this morning. And there is no point in pretending to God that that is not where you are. You need to start real. But the second bit is also really important. He brings it all to God. And that's the bit that we're not always very good at, is it? What we do is we hold our burdens and we hold them ever closer to ourselves. Our grief, our struggles, our illness, whatever it is that we're dealing with. And we cling on to it even more. But what David does in his Psalms is he brings everything to God. He shouts it at God. He says to God, and you laughed when I was reading it, it was lovely, some things that we think are a little bit outrageous. But he brings what he has to God, first of all. And in the doing of that, he reminds himself who God is. Because as soon as he starts to say God, even in anger, it's like, these other bits of his character start coming into his mind. Well, I am angry with him right now today, but actually he was faithful a few months ago. And he was good in that particular instant. And I have experienced his love and protection here. And when this sort of thing happened the last time, I I realized that actually he was my rock. And so as he brings stuff to God, the other aspects of God's character start to come into his mind and he starts to speak about those things in the songs as well. And in the midst of that, he begins to offer himself to God. So no longer is he on one side and God is on the other side and they're shouting at a big distance. He starts to draw close to God and as he draws close to God, his hands become more open to God. He offers himself with all the mess, to God. And in that, he becomes open to being transformed. And I'm sure that you have had that experience. Maybe not every time, 
Sometimes you've probably come to God either on your own or in a church service and you've gone out as cross as when you came in. I understand that. (laughs) But on other occasions, as you have offered what you've brought, maybe with clenched fists to him, and reminded yourself of who he is, and maybe it's because of other people singing in the ear, (laughs) or maybe it's because of the word on the screen that suddenly leapt out at you, and you've allowed those truths to get a hold of you, and you've offered yourself to God, maybe you've found that something within your spirit has started to shift, and you've found yourself in a different place. And I want us, and I hope you don't mind, to go through some of the Psalms this morning. It'll be very rapid, but I think it'll be good for us to actually read some of the words and just think about the things that David wrote. And some of these will probably apply to you this morning, and some of them probably won't. I've more or less done it in chronological order, except that I made a mistake with one of them. (laughs) So, Psalm 2. We won't do all 150, by the way. He starts this. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. He's coming to God in a way that I'm sure many of us do and saying, what is going on with the world? Why are these people in control over the nations? Why have they been raised up to lead? Why has that nation got so much power? Why is there still war here? What is going on? Even as he starts to ask those questions, by verse 4, he says this, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, and he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And he goes on to speak out some words that prove to be prophetic messianically in the future. He starts here with his head down, like many of us do when we look at the news. And even as he's calling out to God about what's going on in the nations, it's as if this little voice comes into his head going, But the Lord is king. The Lord is king. He rules in heaven. He is above it all. And when he looks at them, they're like puppets on the earth, playing their games. But the one in heaven laughs at them because he's king of kings and lord of lords. I wonder how often we have our heads down, wondering at what is going on in this nation of ours, in this world. And we forget that actually we can call out to God with these things. Because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is above it all. And we get perspective when we look at things from his angle. Okay, Psalm 13. My pages are all stuck together. This is a psalm which David writes when he is escaping from Saul, because they didn't have a very great relationship, and he finds himself living in the desert, and his calling, which he's been anointed to be the king, his calling is not working out. He's in the desert, escaping from the current king, and fearing for his life. So this is his prayer. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Anyone ever prayed, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your faith from me? Has anyone ever felt like that, that God has hidden his face? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. 
My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. I feel like that end bit, it feels a bit like um, a child who's been asked to come back. They've run off at a distance. You know how kids, small kids, scuff their shoes on the ground as I'm, not, I'm, I'm coming, but I'm not coming. <laughs> I feel like David's doing that. He's kind of got to the end of this sort of blast to God. Of He's left him, he's ignoring him, he's hiding, he's not doing anything to rescue him. And then he goes, Okay, but I will trust in your unfailing love, scuffing the shoes on the floor. Because sometimes that's where it is, isn't it? It's a decision. It's a hard decision. Your heart's not quite in it, but you're still making that decision to trust him. And I just want us to look at Psalm 18. I just put 118 on there. That's why it's wrong. Just because... Here he starts really positive, and in fact, there's lots of songs that have been written on this first bit. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock, and he might take refuge. He is my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord, who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. Lots of songs have been written on those few verses there. But then it says this. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. There's not so many songs written on that verse, is there? In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. You know, it's really important that somehow or other we capture the whole reality, that David's cry of praise comes out of his sense that God has rescued him from the deepest pit. But he was in the deepest pit. In this psalm, he just feels like giving up altogether, but God is still with him. Psalm 27 will be probably more familiar to many of you. And here's a psalm of hope and affirmation But again, it's in the face of the enemies attacking him. I don't know how many times the word enemy is mentioned in the Psalms, but it will be an awful lot. This is David's experience, that everything's stacked against him. We take out the nice bit, but actually his experience is that everything's stacked against him. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. It's hope in the midst of challenge. It's praise in the midst of difficulty. These are real songs, not just the kind of froth on the surface. Psalm 51, again, probably one that we're a bit more familiar with. And this is most definitely not the airbrush David. This is David's 
who has committed adultery. This is David who has committed murder. This is David to whom God had to send a prophet with a story to convict him of what he had done. And David, out of that, writes this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. I just love that bit, just at the end there. You know, he's, he's recognized where he stands in relation to God and what he has done. And we all have to find ourselves in that place more than once. Because even David said, I've been sinful since birth, actually. It's not just these big sins that I've recently committed. It's actually that there's a difference between me and you, God. And I stand guilty in your presence and I'm asking for your cleansing. But on the back of it, he says, then I will teach sinners your ways. You know, we come into this church as sinners. And we kind of stay here as sinners, cleansed by Jesus' blood, his sacrifice for us. But because we are on that journey, so we can take the hand of someone else and lead them on that same journey. That's what authentic community is, isn't it? People are afraid to come to church because they think they're not good enough. And no one is. And they're afraid to come to church because they think that it's packed full of hypocrites. But when we're real about our flaws and the goodness and grace of God then we create a genuine community that is a safe place for people to come, isn't it? And in, in Psalm 120 to 134, we're not going to read all those, by the way, these are the Psalms of Ascent. These are the ones that David wrote for them to go up into the temple. And there were steps up to the temple. And so on step one, they'd sing together Psalm 120. Step two, they'd sing together Psalm 121. Step three, Psalm 122. Up all the psalm, uh, sorry, all the steps until they got to the, the step which was the entrance to the temple. So when you look at these psalms from Psalm 120 to 134, you find that there's a gradual progression from distance to closeness and praise. So if you're thinking to yourself, I don't know where to start. Why don't you start at Psalm 120? Because it will take you on a journey which will help you to unravel how you're feeling and the stuff in your life and to explore with you the character of God and his presence with you and will take you on a journey up the steps into the temple of praise, just simply the presence of God for us. Psalm 137. It says this. Some of you will know the tune to this. 
by the rivers of Babylon. We sat and wept when we remembered, you have to sing Zion, don't you? That way. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. I love the fact that they're all carrying these harps with them to the rivers in Babylon. For there, our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? I'm sure that you found yourself in that place from time to time. Someone said, come on, we're going to sing a song of praise, probably like me. And you've gone, we're really not. I know because I can see your faces. And sometimes we're just in a strop, aren't we? But other times, actually, our hearts just feel in a place of exile and you just go, I can't sing that song today. I can't sing that song because I'm in a strange land and it doesn't feel right to me to sing that song. David just takes it all, doesn't he, and wraps it up in this playlist for life. Psalm 139 reminds us of the presence of God with us wherever we go, wherever we are, when we're struggling with self-doubt or a lack of self-esteem or wondering what it's all about or what we're all for. I love this psalm because we mostly only read verses 1 to uh, 18 and then we have a little jump to verse 23. This is because the bit in the middle goes this, because you'll not have heard this bit. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. You know, sometimes we'd rather say that bit than the other nice bit. And sometimes we're like David, which is we say all the nice bit, and then we have this overwhelming surge of something within us, and we go, where did that come from? And we say to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. It's so real, isn't it? And then Psalm 145, this is the last of the ones we're going to do. And this is the kind of worshipy one. You know, I will exalt you, my Lord, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Song coming up. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. And then it goes on a bit. And then in verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Oh, it's another song. Slow to anger and rich in love. And so on. But this is our playlist for life. Do you know, some of our songwriters have captured some of these things over the years. The spirituals written in the time of slavery, they captured some of these emotions, these tones. Some of the songs that we occasionally sing, I've had questions without answers. Yet I will praise you in the dark place. You know, we don't sing so many of those, but actually more and more of our songs wrap up some of those emotions in them, actually, which is good, because we need to sing the songs of life. So we're just going to skip over the whole of the rest of the Old Testament and briefly come to Jesus. Because, well, he's a kind of messy Messiah, isn't he? You know, we like things to be neat and tidy and 
perfect, but, but Jesus was never like that. You know, Jesus called the tax collector, the marginalized, the excluded, the one who defrauded his own people, or Jesus called him. Jesus dealt with the adulteress. He dealt with a woman who'd had many failed marriages. He just dealt with people as they were. He took the blind and the lame, the questioning and the confused, the religious and the excluded, and they all found hope in Jesus, the messy Messiah, through whom they could be as they were. As they were. They didn't have to put on the kind of serene, perfect Sunday exterior to come to Jesus. They came as they were. And those who responded to him never left exactly the same, but they were not completely transformed. That doesn't happen this side of heaven, this side of Jesus. They began to be transformed. They began to be changed from one degree of glory to another. But if they were anything like me, they gained a couple of degrees of glory and then they seemed to drop a few along the way. It never seems quite like a smooth process whereby we gain a degree and then another degree and another degree and we just get more and more shiny. Sometimes we get tarnished. Sometimes we don't quite manage to get that degree. But we are being changed by the grace and mercy of Christ. But we come as we are and every day we come as we are. And every day he accepts us as we are. Not as we should be, not as we think we should be, not as anyone else has told us that we should be, but as we are. And the Gospels just make it so, so clear to us that Jesus never expected anyone to change before they had encountered him, before they'd received his grace, before they'd been empowered by his spirit. They could come as they are. And in this church, and I hope you're okay with this, we are content to live with messiness. In fact, actually, it's one of the greatest joys of these last years is that we've become more and more messy. I hope that that's okay. I kind of think it's a beautiful mess, actually. Because there's been greater depth and greater reality and greater authenticity and a greater sense of everyone being welcome to come to Jesus and to come here. And a little while ago, a few years actually, I had a picture and I couldn't, I couldn't find a perfect illustration of this picture. So this is the best that I can do. And the picture, if you like, was of a piece of fabric. And in, it was exactly like that, sort of all crossed over, that kind of fabric. Very clear, cross, crossed overness, woven fabric. And in the centre of it, it was tighter and neater. But on the edges... It was more open, in fact it was more open than that, more messy towards the outside and more open. And I really felt that that God was saying to me and to us that as we come closer to God, to the centre, he does expect a bit more of us. There is a a bit more of a toughness, there is a sense in which we are being made holy, we are becoming more like Jesus. But on the edges... There's just an openness, so anyone can come in. 
And it's still pretty fragmented and, and open. The texture of the fabric is. Because, well, those people are just starting on the journey, aren't they, of coming in to the community, which is the community of faith, of being with us. And as I was thinking about that a little bit more this week, I felt like, well, I felt like really we were like a giant and forever unfinished rag rug. I hope that you don't feel offended by that. I love rag rugs because you just take anything, a piece of material, any color, any texture, imperfect, perfect, gold threads running through it, a little bit stained and different, it's fine. You just take the fabric and you put the fabric into the rug and it's all sorts of individual bits of fabric that are put into the rug. And in the end, you end up with something that is stunning. It's beautiful. It's not boring. It's not monochrome. It's multicolor, technicolor, beautiful. Something that's made that's of value and use. Have all bits of rags. And I just feel like we as the church, and I don't just mean the church here in Skipton, I mean the church. All sorts of personalities and nationalities from all sorts of parts of history. And God has somehow woven them all together in their authenticity and reality into this massive rag rug. So, we are a community of the flawsome. That's one of our signs for the outside. And here's the other one, the community of the rag rug. <laughs> Because our awesome designer makes beauty out of broken things. And the more real we are, and let me say again, there are times to be more authentic and vulnerable and times to be less so. And that's for you to decide really that bit. But the more real we are with God and honest with him, the more real stories we have. Because we're not pretending with him, and in our reality, he engages with us. And then we can be a bit more real with each other, because we don't need to pretend, because God loves us as we are, and our story is of him transforming us as we are. And that allows the doors to be open for everybody else, to feel that they can come and join in. You know, let's set the bar really low. <laughs> so let's not have a bar. Let's just say, come in. Come and be part of us. And together we're following Jesus and being transformed by him. Amen.